Heavenly Father, we love you. We adore you. We exalt your name. And we pray that the few minutes that we have together here to look at the word, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see very clearly not only the great realities that are in this book that are objective and true and and powerful, but Father, that you would commune with our spirits, Lord, in such a way that we would internalize these things and they would become our joy, our treasure, that aspects of your character, who you are, aspects of what is at stake in the world right now with your glory and your beauty being displayed, that that would become very clear to us, that we would see and know you, who you are, your purposes in the world, and how worthy you are of our complete devotion, Father. And so I pray that with full confidence, knowing that you are able to meet every need, and this is a need that we have. And I ask, Lord, that you would be with every family, and there are many, um, who, who are not feeling well today and are sick, Father. I pray that you would heal and that you'd prevent the spread of this illness any further, um, and that we would be able to gather as a family next week in joy, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. I also pray for the church in Pakistan who suffered from a suicide bomber, Lord, the people that were lost there, the believers, fellow heirs in Christ, brothers and sisters who are now with their king. I pray that there would be peace and comfort in that community of believers in Pakistan that you would sovereignly and graciously move in a powerful way to bring them hope and joy, even in the midst of heartache. Pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to Colossians 1. We've been going through the book of Colossians, and uh, we have arrived at texts in the middle of chapter 1 which engage these two huge concepts of light and dark. And um, Paul is providing in this part of the letter a reason why, at the close of this prayer that he just said, the, the Colossian believers can have great confidence that God is able to and will work for their good. Um that God is going to answer Paul's prayer in a powerful way. And the reason why is because of what he has already accomplished, um, both for his glory and for the fullness of their joy. God has already done the greatest thing for you. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. And so I want to start in verse 12. It's in the middle of a sentence. And then we'll move through to the end of 14. So Colossians 1, 12. Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there is in this text a kingdom of light and a domain of darkness. There is a beloved son, who we learned last week is the true light of the world, according to John 1. And there is a world that is cloaked in darkness. 
And so the story of Christmas, what this text is telling us today, is not a safe story. It is not a domesticated story. It is literally the infiltration into the darkness of this world by the Son of God to rescue his people and to deliver them from the darkness by redeeming them through the forgiveness of sins. That's the purpose of the incarnation, Jesus coming in human form, God the Son coming in human form in the person of Jesus Christ, and that is the reason for Christmas. It's the reason Christmas exists. So last week we looked at Christ, the true light of the world, and we saw that the light shines into the darkness and that the darkness has not overcome it. And this week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking that reality of the light shining into the world and the darkness not overcoming it, and we're going to see what are the personal implications. What does it mean for each of us when we start to focus on our own lives and ask, when the light shines in the darkness, what does that mean for me? Or a more Colossians way to put it would be, how did God deliver us individually from the domain of darkness, and how did he transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son? And so the best place for us to start with asking these questions would really be with the author's own story. The author is Paul of this letter, and so Paul gives his testimony multiple times in the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Acts, he gives, there's three different mentions of it in the book of Acts. And so we see what happened to him on the road to Damascus multiple times. And he wants people to know in his communication, even in his letters, how he went from being the chief persecutor of the church to the most ferocious evangelist the church has ever seen. He wants people to see that because he knows that in his conversion and what happened to him on that road, there are insights, there are truths, there are things that he need, that people need to see in order to understand what happened to them supernaturally. And so in Acts 26, when giving his testimony to King Agrippa, um, Paul basically mentions some interesting details that we don't see in the earlier versions of, of Acts, um, the earlier versions of his testimony. Um, listen closely in this section of scripture, how he describes the event, and listen to what Jesus says to him about what his mission is. It says in uh, Acts 26, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a service, or as a servant and witness to these things in which you have seen me, and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, and this is the part that we really need to focus on, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to, the po- to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctify- sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus tells Paul, he says, I am sending you to open their eyes. Now, why would he say that? Why would he use that language? 
he tells him why. He says, so that these people, the Gentiles and the Jews that are unbelievers, may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And when this happens, according to Jesus in this passage, they will receive forgiveness of sins and a place among, um, um, they will receive forgiveness of sins and a place in inheritance, which is what Colossians would say and, and describe it as, among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ Jesus. So this sounds really familiar. Like I just mentioned, in Colossians, it says they are delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. They were given redemption. And so the Bible, again, and it does this frequently, as we discussed last week, presents these ideas, these concepts of light and dark, of these two realities. But it says even more than that. It says here that there's an aspect of this that is personal and internal, that it's not simply like walking into a dark room and not being able to see things. But there is a darkness here, a, a real darkness that is compared to physical blindness. There's a darkness here that rises up from within the person. It's not out there, which we, are, we tend to think it's actually in here. Jesus says in Luke 11, he explains why this sight issue is an issue that deals with um, the darkness that we've talked about in Colossians. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So the darkness here he's describing is not a darkness that's out here. It is a darkness that is inside individual human beings. And it's critical for us to get this because we tend to, to, to sort of default to this idea that the darkness really is out there in the world but in reality, when the Bible describes it, it is a darkness that kind of wells up from within the human's heart. And um, Scripture is really clear about the nature of this blindness. There's a passage in John 3 that, that explains why some people come to the light and some people don't. Why some people um, are receiving of Jesus Christ and why, why others do not. This is what it says in John 3. And this is the judgment. This is Jesus the light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus is saying here that those who do wicked things, those who sin, anyone who sins, at the core of their being, they hate the light. He says that the natural man, whoever's controlled by or dominated by their sin, despises the light. And this is a radical st statement because in some ways it speaks to the, the natural state of every human being, the natural disposition of every human being that lives. Anyone in their flesh hates the light. In fact, Paul in Romans 8, 7 through 8 says that anyone who's in the flesh is hostile to God. They cannot please God because there's a hostility in them that comes up from within them toward God, toward his rules, toward the light. Ephesians 4 helps us draw this concept of spiritual darkness even further out and explains some of the implications of this and where the source is. So listen to this, Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So Paul is saying that, that people walk in, who walk in darkness are really darkened in their understanding. This blindness, this darkness is not something that's out here. It is inside them, and it obscures how they see everything in the world. And he says here that they walk in the futility of their minds. So there, there's a kind of ignorance here that is inside human beings naturally to the nature of the light, to what the light is. And I want to be clear here, this is not an intellectual kind of ignorance. This is not an, an ignorance that deals with people who are just not clearly taught, well taught. This is an ignorance that can affect brilliant thinkers. In fact, um, we may have remarkable intellects and still have this ignorance. This ignorance is still really real. This is not the same thing as being ignorant of facts. And so there are two things here that we really need to observe about this text that helps us understand the nature of the darkness and therefore will lead us to what the solution to the darkness would be. First is this. It has, according to this text, it completely alienated and excluded them from the life of God. It says they are alienated from the life of God. If you remember John 1 from last week, we talked about um, John connecting this idea, this concept of light and life. He said, in him, that is in the word, in Jesus Christ, there was life. And then he says, the life was the light of men. So light and life in scripture are deeply connected realities, almost synonymous. And therefore, like we talked about last week, darkness and death are very closely tied together. And what Paul is saying here is that these people who, who dwell in darkness, who have a darkened understanding, are alienated from God's life and joy. The Greek here means they are excluded from. They are kept out of. And if I can be real with you for a second, if we understood, if we really understood what it means for this to be a finality in a human soul, it would make us weep. It would cause us severe emotional trauma. To understand what it means to be outside of the life of God, there is no life outside of God. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no hope, there is only death, which is why getting people to see is such a critical reality. Um, and it's why Paul was commissioned in the first place. It's why Jesus said, I'm sending you to open their eyes. I'm sending you, Paul, out into the world to break the hold of darkness on these people. And that's essentially what it means to evangelize. That's what it means to be on mission. Um, this isn't a, a game. This isn't a religion. This is a war for souls to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Now, the second aspect of this text that is really important for us to see is the source of the darkness. Notice that the ignorance here isn't due, again, to having not all the facts. This isn't due to not fully understanding something or needing more information. 
The ignorance here is due only to one thing, Paul says. It is due to the hardness of their hearts. You see that in verse 18? So what is hardness of heart? What does he mean by that phrase? Hardness of heart in the context of Scripture and in this context means at the core, it is a refusal to acknowledge the reality being presented. It is a refusal to acknowledge God in this way. Um, it is an unwillingness to receive God for who he really is. And this refusal at the core of their being has skewed everything that they see. And this is tragic because the main factor causing unbelief here isn't about what can be known in the physical world. That's not what Paul's going to. He's saying the main factor that causes unbelief is desire. There is something in the desire factory of the human being that causes unbelief. Um, it's not a desire, it's not a, an unbelief or ignorance that says, you know what, that can't be. Uh, or it's not an ignorance that says, I don't have enough facts, I need more facts. It is an ignorance that says that simply cannot be at all. And some people would say, um, I hear this question a lot, you know, here's my issue with Christianity is that um, if I were to just see God, I mean, if he was just to make himself known, everyone would believe in him. Who wouldn't believe in him? Um, if he would present himself and not be an invisible God, like Scripture says, why would I have any unbelief? Uh, well, I have two responses for that. First is this. According to Scripture, um, the reality is, is that he has made himself completely known, that we actually have all the facts we need to believe in God. Everything we need as human beings is there in the created world, according to Romans 1. And Paul says it's not a matter of knowing facts. It's a matter of not liking what you see. This has to do with the heart. It is a refusal at the core to embrace the glory of God. The second answer I'd give to that statement, um, if God were just to show up, I would believe in him, is that God did show up. He showed up, and when he did show up, when he did make himself physically and visibly known in the world, this is what happened to him. They beat him up into a fleshy pulp, and then they hung him on a tree until he suffocated under the weight of his own body and died. They had all the facts. It was a Gentile and Jew series of tribunals that judged him, even though he was innocent, as worthy of dying. It wasn't a matter of, I needed more facts about him. It was a matter of, I see all the facts, and I hate them. And if we really press even deeper into the darkness just for a moment before we turn and look at the hope that's in this text, it gets worse because we recognize that this is really sort of the state of every human being in the world. Um, we are born into darkness. We are born into condemnation. John 3, 17 says, after that amazing John 3, 16, um, says this text in 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, praise God, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. He's saying whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
Their condemnation is a present reality. And he's saying this because, not only because they have no inheritance with the saints, he's saying this because they are alienated from the life of God. They are tragically severed from the joy that is found in knowing the one true God. And at this point, we need to again reflect on the fact that this idea of being alienated from the life of God is horrific. There is no calamity in this world that, or that we could even conceive of that is greater than being excluded from the life of God and being excluded so eternally. There is nothing. I promise you, what is being described by Jesus and Paul in the entire testimony of Scripture here is, to be frank, there is nothing in the human vocabulary that can even adequately describe it, which is why you see these people grasping for visual symbols to try to pull this together. Being eternally cut off from the life and love of the one who made you, the one who sustains you, the one for whom you are made, there is no greater tragedy in the universe, period. There is nothing worse than this, which means the most important question we can ask, the most critical question we can ask is, is there a cure for this blindness? Is there a solution for the darkness? Is there any hope for the people who in our lives are presently severed from and alienated from the life of God? And the answer is yes. Praise be to God, there is hope. 2 Corinthians 4 is the passage I want to go to next. Verse 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. This is one of my favorite texts in the New Testament, period. And it is one of the most hopeful texts, I would say, to anyone who seeks to, to open the eyes of the fellow pe- man that they have around them, whether at work or whether in their home. Listen to Paul's words here about the nature of blindness and listen to his words about God's solution for the blindness. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So in an unbeliever's case, the God of this world, the power of Satan has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, what Paul and his people proclaim, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He has blinded them. This is the power of Satan that was being described in Acts 26. Make no doubt about it. This is the same hardness of heart we see in Ephesians 4. They are, Paul says, blind. They cannot see the gospel. It is veiled to them. The beauty of the gospel, even if they are preached it every Sunday, they can't see it for what it is. But then Paul interrupts his train of thought and the tragedy and the trauma that's found in this darkness. And he answers our question, is there a cure? Is there any way that the darkness can be pushed back in in the lives of our friends and our family and the people that we have around us that don't see beauty in Jesus Christ? 
And his answer is yes. Here's what hope look like, looks like. It's a voice. There is a voice that can push you back. It is the voice of the living God. And when he speaks, he gives a command. Let light shine out of darkness. If you were here last week, this isn't the first time he's given this command. Staring into the depths of the uncreated universe, the darkness that was before him, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke and light appeared where there was once only darkness. And Paul is saying that the same God can do the exact same thing into the hearts of a darkness-shrouded unbeliever. He can say, let light shine out of darkness and they can see. Now, of course, he's referring back when he says this, was ha- this happened in my own ministry. He's referring back to Acts 26. He's referring back to the event that Paul was blind to the reality of Jesus Christ. He was blind to the beauty of the gospel. And then in a moment, he was given sight. In a moment, the glory of Christ pierced the darkness that shrouded his heart, and it shined into the depth of his soul like a blazing supernova. And in that moment, he found his ultimate joy in Jesus Christ. Not in personal accomplishment, not in anything else. He found it in Jesus. And Paul calls this light. He says it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what does he mean by that? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this, the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of his beauty is most fully displayed and most fully appreciated and loved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where God's glory shines the brightest, and it's the gospel. It is the gospel, which he says earlier. Um, and, and, And what he's saying here is this, what he's trying to lay out before us is that there's a way in which you can look at the gospel and understand all the facts of the gospel very clearly and still not see it have no emotion towards it, have no affection towards it, have no delight in it. It's there. I got all the facts. Yeah, never mind. In fact, it could be boring to you and not make any sense. But when the light shines into our hearts, when the light pierces into the darkness and the hardness of our hearts, in that moment, we look at the gospel and suddenly we are captivated by what we see. We see Jesus Christ in his beauty and his glory, and we see his staggering greatness and majesty, and his unprecedented meekness in coming to earth for us, and his unparalleled love in dying for us, even though we deserve, we don't deserve it at all. And in his presence, in that light, we are completely undone. We go from an absence of feeling anything to being completely gripped by the reality that we see. That's the cure. The cure to the darkness is God's sovereign, gracious, unmitigated, light-creating voice penetrating the thick walls of darkness of a human soul. 
and changing them from the very bottom of who they are into precisely what God has called them to be. Now, this is where there's great joy. This is where we can, we can rejoice because I want to talk about what God's called us to be. In the passage before Colossians 1.12, he refers to us as saints in light. Saints in light. What happens to the human heart when they are captivated by Jesus Christ? What happens to the human soul when the darkness is removed and they embrace and enjoy Jesus for who he is? John 12.36, which we read last week, says, we become sons of light. We become sons and daughters of light. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.5, we are children of the light. He says, we are children of day, connecting the idea of day and light together, which we talked about last week. And Jesus says of his disciples, of course, in Matthew 5, 14, you are, he says, the light of the world. And then he commands them to let their light shine before others. Why does he do that? so that they would glorify God, so that this glory shining into our lives doesn't just push back the darkness of the world, but it shines from us into the darkness that exists in the world. And this is profound, because what it means is that what happened on the cross wasn't just the stripping away of darkness so that we could see with our eyes. What happened on the cross was definitely that, but it was more than that. What happened on the cross was not just him taking away the darkness, but him pouring out our light into, his, into our souls. Pouring out his light into our souls. I want you to listen to Paul in Ephesians 5. When commanding the men of his church to love their wives sacrificially, he pulls back the curtain a little bit on a massive reality about what Jesus accomplished on the cross for his bride. Listen to what he says here in Ephesians 5. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We could spend literally hours and hours unpacking what that means on a personal level for every husband and every man really in this church. And one day, God willing, we will. Um, it's a huge aspect of, of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a husband. But there's a greater reality here. Paul refers to Christ Jesus as being the husband, the bridegroom of the church. This is huge. Because it says that on the cross, what he did was he gave himself up for her. He paid a dowry price for her and sanctified his bride. Paid for everything that would stop her from being able to be his bride. And he did that with the washing of water with the word. Now, this is another way of saying the gospel. He did that with his command. And he did this for one reason, it says here, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. In splendor. What does he mean by that? 
The phrase in splendor in this text is in the Greek, in doxus. And that comes from the root word doxa. Some of you may already know what that is. Doxa is Greek for glory, for the radiance of light that effuses from God. And so the literal translation of this statement would be, so that he might present the church to himself in glory. What happens on the cross, what happened with Jesus Christ giving himself up for his church is that he made us, the bride of Christ, into children of the light. He made us into saints in light. So in a moment, we will be worshiping and participating in communion. If you are a believer, I invite you to partake in communion. And what communion is, I want to be clear about this every Sunday and as much as we can is this, it is us remembering and us proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ, this accomplishment that we just see, we see in Ephesians 5. And every time we get together, we're going to talk about this accomplishment, because if I'm honest with you, this is the one thing that we can't afford to ever, ever, ever forget. When we take the bread and the juice, we are taking the body, not literally, but symbolically, we are taking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are remembering what happened in his death wasn't just the torture and execution of a Roman prisoner. Jesus Christ, and I want you to to feel this as you worship, Jesus Christ entered, if you're a believer, into the depths of your darkness. All of it. And he gathered every single sin that you've ever committed, every single sin that you've ever committed, until nothing remained, past, present, and future, even the ones that you are most ashamed of. He gathered them up and didn't leave a single sin behind, and he took all of them into the depths of God's judgment and wrath. He went into the darkest place in all existence. He went far outside the life of God. And with our sin on him, in utter abandonment, such that he could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the breakers of abandonment beat on him, the darkness, the sin, the wickedness, every sin was obliterated and paid for in full. And he, in that moment, delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into his own kingdom. Our redemption was secured because he paid for every single sin. And when he rose, he brought with him life and light such that by trusting in him, by trusting in his accomplishment, all of us are made into sons and daughters of light. I want to read the first two verses of a passage in Isaiah and then we'll close in prayer. These two verses come at the beginning of chapter 60 in the book of Isaiah. And um, they are profound at a lot of levels, but one of them is this it depicts a visualization of what it means for people to come out of darkness and to be embraced by light and what it is for that person, their mission, their purpose in this world now that they have been become a child of light. Listen to this. It's deeply connected to Colossians, deeply connected to Christmas, and deeply connected to everything we do here at Risen Hope. Arise, shine, for your light has come. 
the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. We have become children of the light. We are saints in light. And may the outcome of our faith in Christ Jesus be that the glory of God, the glory of the eternal God is displayed in our actions, in our words, in our behavior, especially this time of the year where people are trying to figure out what it means for the light to have pierced the darkness 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we adore you and we adore your purposes in the world and we want to be aligned with them completely, Father. But we recognize that behind every effort, behind every purpose or mission in our heart to, to try to display the beauty of God is an empirical and objective reality at the center of human history. That the light shined into the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. In fact, the darkness on that day was decisively defeated. And we live in the wake of that reality, Father, and because of that, the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ can penetrate the hardest heart in the world, the most darkened understanding in the world. And in that moment, Father, we know that you can deliver them from darkness. You can redeem them by forgiving their sins. You can cause them to see and to embrace the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I ask right now that you would in all of our hearts as we worship, get us into the posture in, in embracing you in, in communion of seeing and enjoying the beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ, especially in this season, Father, when we are celebrating that the entrance, the infiltration of your beauty into this world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And help us, Father, as a people to shine. Help us to be a radiant bride for the bridegroom. Help us to display his beauty, not just in what we say, but in our actions, Father, and in the fact that we're willing to take on shame by proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, even when it's not acceptable or reasonable or, or cool, Father. I pray that your grace would be with us, Father, that we would be able to, to display the beauty of Jesus in this season in a real and tangible way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.